0: I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. Nolan is considered one of the pioneers of the video game industry, having created the first coin-operated game, as well as Atari's debut game, Pong. Nolan is the author of Finding the Next Steve Jobs. He gave Steve his first job at Atari before Steve started Apple in 1976. Welcome.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Now, while we were doing a sound check before starting the interview, you started to recite the words from the Jabberwocky, a nonsense poem by Lewis Carroll from the novel Through the Looking Glass.
1: It's a, it's a really surprising sound check that people <laughs> I do on occasion. <laughs> the Jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tonguey wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one two and through and through he took his vor- his vorpal blade went snicker snack he left it dead and with its head he went clumping back.
0: Have you memorized a number of poems and excerpts of stories? Oh yeah I mean
1: we used to do this thing with car trips with a lot of kids. you were always going to give kids 20 or 30 bucks on a vacation. So while we were getting there, I would always make the kids memorize poems for which they'd get five bucks. And so by the time you get there, the kids would all know a certain amount of poems. And they've all said that they thought it was stupid at the time, but they really appreciated it ultimately.
0: Now, when you were growing up, you were one of four. Correct. Did your parents also create a game-like environment?
1: We played a lot of games when I was growing up. It was a ability that we had to constantly sort of mess around and and play on an intellectual level. Like, I learned to play chess when I was, like, first grade.
0: Your mother was a teacher, and your father was in the concrete business. That's correct. What exactly did they do?
1: They primarily did curb and gutter and sidewalks.
0: Would you ever work with the concrete just in your own time and create things with the concrete?
1: Oh, yeah. Like uh, what? Well, uh, I went through a bomb-making phase where I, in my backyard, I created a blockhouse. If you're going to set off bombs, you you don't want to get hurt.
0: (laughs) Your father died when you were 15 years old. What role did you play in the company after he died?
1: I finished up all his contracts and then sold the equipment and closed the business down.
0: Why was the onus or the opportunity placed on you to do it versus somebody else in your family?
1: Well, all I had were sisters. It was a Mormon household, and the male is considered to be the big honcho. But I also knew the business, from ordering the concrete to setting up the forms to dealing with the uh, surveyors. It just seemed normal.
0: Incidentally, you grew up in a Mormon household, and you now have eight children. Did your religion play a role in your wanting to have as many children as you do?
1: I had become a agnostic heathen at 18. My actual feeling about having a lot of kids came from my intellectual arrogance. I literally felt that that the world would be better off if I had a lot of my DNA out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And (laughs) the intellectual arrogance sometimes, you know, my wife just gets so mad at me when I say that.
0: When you were a young boy, in addition to having exposure to your father's business, you had entrepreneurial leanings. You had a TV set repair business when you were were 10. What was the nature of that?
1: If you were a geek in the 50s, you were a ham radio operator.
0: Ham radio, by the way, allowed you to talk to foreigners. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Ham radio was an expensive hobby. And so I knew there had to be a way to make more money than the traditional 10-year-old venues. And it really started out by me fixing the family's TV set.
0: You would go to people's homes to fix their televisions. uh, And there's some folklore that you would buy the parts, let's say, at 10 cents and claim that they were 30 cents uh, to fix.
1: It was actually more like I'd buy the tubes for about a buck and a quarter. And you typically charge 3 to $5 for a tube.
0: You worked at amusement parks during college. And so you, you, you were surrounded by games, whether it was chess in first grade or the amusement parks. And did you have a sense that you wanted to have a career in game creation? Or was that more accidental?
1: I'm not sure that it was accidental because I had a certain facility for Barkerism, if you would. I mean, I... I did a lot of debate in high school. And and if you really look at the pathway, whether it's ham radio, you know, posing as an adult, debate, barkerism, I, I, these were all verbal skills.
0: Could you show me some of your barkerism?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, if you really want a stuffed animal, this is the place to get it. But if you play for 50 cents, that's three times the size animals. And if I was talking to a young man, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I'd say, your girl will love you forever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. You founded Atari in 1972 with a gentleman, Ted Dabney, whom you bought out quite quickly. But before Atari, you had worked at a company called Ampex, which made tape recorders, among other things. And from there, you started your first gaming company called Sysurgy. And again, this was right before Atari.
1: It's the last S in the dictionary, and as a, as a geek, I thought it was a really cool company name.
0: You started Sycergy and created your first game called Computer Space, which was modeled after a game called Space War that that you had seen. And this was the first coin-operated game. Correct. And you then started Atari in 1972. Your first uh, game was Pong. This too was kind of a copy of another game you had seen. Correct. Can you describe that?
1: During the 60s, with the big computers, we, we all programmed a lot of different games. And, of course, one of them was a ping-pong game. When I started Atari, our plan was to be the development house because we had no factory, we had no money. So we thought we'll just sell we'll sell our skills for royalties. Game over.
0: So Atari actually started out as a game design business for other people.
1: Precisely. And so... Uh, we had these contracts, and our first employee was a guy named Al Alcorn. You know, we'd been in the business for a couple of years, and somebody says, there's a video game being shown in uh, Northern California, and we've got competition. Mm-hmm. So I had to go up and see it, and it was the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the consumer game. I looked at it, and it was fuzzy and, and a lot of things, and I said, oh, there's, this, this is no competition at all. But I looked around and saw that they were playing a game of simulated ping-pong, people were kind of having fun with it. And I thought, well, this would be a good learning thing. So I defined the the game. I said, do a ping-pong game for me. Mm
0: -hmm. To Al. Mm -hmm.
1: To Al. And literally in a week, he had it wired up and was working. And uh, as we say, the rest is history.
0: Why was it so successful initially?
1: I think that it was the right game at the right time. First of all, it was... Simple, you could play the game holding a beer in one hand and and playing the game with the other. There was also a funny thing, and I'm not sure exactly how important it was, but the typical woman could beat the typical man
0: Mm.
1: playing Pong. And it was because women have better small muscle coordination than men do. Mm. Men have bigger, large, better large muscle coordination, i.e. throwing a ball, that sort of thing. When it comes to just turning the knob, precisely, women were much better. And this was just sort of the dawn of women's liberation and all that sort of stuff. And so it was massively gratifying to women to be able to come up and beat the college football hero.
0: And you debuted Pong at a local bar, and folklore is that you preloaded the machines with coins to make it seem like they were the machine was more popular than... No, we really. actually did
1: that later. This one was just a test... And there were actually lines out, out the door so that they could come and play Pong.
0: So when did you preload the machines to make it seem like the machine was more popular than it was?
1: Well, later on, uh, as we got into production, people always wanted to test the machines. And so we would give the machine to one of our distributors who would put it into a random location and see how well it did. And so on Sundays, I'd kind of drive around and figure out where the machine was, find it, and... Put, put 50 or to $100 worth of quarters in it.
0: Now, it seems like, though, while the game uh, had wide adoption, that a crucial pivot moment for you was a couple years later in 1975 when some engineers came to you presenting a consumer version of Pong. Correct. And this obviously caught it, caused it to be pervasive internationally. Was there one distributor or one store chain of stores that really helped you get the product out to market?
1: Absolutely. In fact, we did it the consumer pong. We took it to the toy show and we set up our booth. And we thought that we were going to. It was going to be a tsunami of people wanting it. We sold zero.
0: Hmm.
1: And the reason was is the toy business at that time sort of had an artificial price ceiling of about thirty five bucks. And we were trying to get 79 for for our unit. And we were somewhat crestfallen. UNL. Yeah. And ultimately, we thought, well, maybe we need to sell it through TV shops. Hmm. And uh, they didn't want to touch it because they were in the business of financing things and they didn't want to finance a game. And finally, uh, we called Sears. And Sears had a sporting goods department. That essentially turned into a family room business, selling ping pong tables and pool tables for family rooms. And the previous year, they'd had a pinball, a consumer pinball machine that they sold out of. Mm. And they thought, OK, Pong is in bars. Pinballs are in bars. This, this is an appropriate thing for us. And so they climbed onto it, and it was a blowout for us.
0: It's always interesting to me how you have these accidental allies, how really that one decision maker at Sears could have been that fulcrum for you.
1: Things sometimes are so binary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's really frightening and surprising that they, they worked for us.
0: <laughs> and in the, in the 80s, you saw pong in places as far afield as Saudi Arabia where two close friends of mine were allowed to play for 15 minutes a day, except when their parents were shopping, they'd play longer.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Where are some of the more exotic places that you've seen Pong machines?
1: Well, I, I remember distinctly I was uh, traveling in Spain uh, to one of these up-the-hill fortress cities. And you drive up and you say, gee, I, don't know, I bet I'm the first American that has ever been here. And then you go into the local bar, and there was a Pong.
0: (laughs) I want to talk about the culture of Atari that you created. You allowed people, such as Steve Jobs, to work the night shifts. How come?
1: I felt that anybody with skill, you should be able to find an adaptation in the workforce to allow that skill to prosper without necessarily it being disruptive to the rest of the environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve was a little bit uh, difficult. A lot of people really wanted to have him fired because he was direct spoken and he didn't bathe very often at the time. And and I felt, okay, I'll just put him on the engineering night shift, which incidentally didn't exist before then. It was partially that and partially I knew that He and Wozniak hung out a lot, and Wozniak was working at Hewlett-Packard. And so I knew if I put Steve on the night shift, I'd get two Steves for the price of one.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You really supported Steve. Uh, You paid for his meditation retreats in India, and this is even after he said he was going to stop working at Atari.
1: Well, that's sort of right and sort of wrong. He put in his uh, resignation, and uh, we had a problem in Germany. Nobody wanted to go over and take care of it, but Steve had the skills, and I said, would you go fix the problem in Germany? And uh, he said, yeah, um, but instead of a a return trip, I just want to take that stub of the ticket and and go on to India. And I said, fine.
0: The success of Pong uh, caused you, ironically, not to focus on the computer business. At that time, you had Steve Jobs and Wozniak come to you and say, would you like to buy our little fledgling company, Apple, for $50,000 and own a third of the company? And you said, well, you know what? We're too occupied right now to get involved, and I'd like to stick with the gaming business because the gaming business was thriving. Yes. So it's ironic to me that Pong's success caused you, in a way, to turn down owning a third of Apple. What are your thoughts about that? It
1: it wasn't as much Pong's success as the, the Atari VCS, the programmable one which we did in, in 76. And uh, I think there were two or three issues for me at the time. One, I wasn't convinced that, that Jobs would be a good CEO. And second, I knew that we had plans to get into the computer business subsequently, but we felt that there needed to be a higher level of integration for a personal computer.
0: You were right about Steve not being a good CEO, at least initially.
1: Initially, and, and, and I think that... One of the unsung heroes of Apple Computer is Mike Markla, who was an extraordinary executive that really brought Apple the gravitas and the adult management that was necessary at the time.
0: Perhaps it was also Steve's own time in the desert after he was ousted from Apple the first time to really force him to have more maturity and perspective.
1: You know, there's nothing like a few hard knocks to knock some of the edges off you.
0: (laughs) And speaking of a few hard knocks, you had a few dark years yourself after selling Atari to Warner Brothers for $28 million. You butted heads with the Warner Brothers team over how Atari should be run. Ultimately, you left the company. Can you describe what happened?
1: You know, they were determined to dismantle the corporate culture. Because it was a little too freewheeling for them, and they were, you know, we used to call them the suits.
0: One point of contention was with Atari's integration into the restaurant business with Chuck E. Cheese Pizza. Can you describe that?
1: Yeah, they said, why would we want to be in the restaurant business? And I said, well, it's vertical integration towards the market. I said, we're selling coin-operated games for $1,500 to $2,000 at the time. I said, over their life, they'll earn thirty dollars to $50,000 didn't take rocket science to say that you're on the wrong side of the transaction. You really want to be in an environment where you're collecting the coin. And that's what Chuck E. Cheese was all about.
0: And you bought the restaurant chain from Warner Brothers for, was it a half a million dollars? Half a
1: million dollars.
0: It went bankrupt in 1984. Well, you know,
1: things get into trouble after I leave them somehow. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. But as you know, Atari really did a huge hiccup after I left because they, when they had sort of dismantled the the creative culture, they didn't bring any new games out. And so the fabled 1982, 83 implosion of the video game business, totally predictable. In fact, I made more money shorting in Warner stock because I could see it coming Mm -hmm. than I actually did on the sale, but that's Mm -hmm. another story.
0: And similarly, when you left Chuck E. Cheese also, a, the company suffered.
1: Yeah, you know, Chuck E. Cheese was never about being in the restaurant business. It was all about a ecosystem around a big game center. Once I solve all the problems, I like to get professional managers in mm-hmm. to fix things. And sometimes that doesn't work. And we got a professional guy in that knew the restaurant business and he wanted to turn it into a restaurant and with really disastrous results.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. I want to talk about Catalyst Technologies, which is the company that you created, or the business incubator, really, that you created after leaving leaving Warner Brothers. And it's striking to me how clairvoyant you've been uh, in predicting technologies even before their time. Um, some of the companies that you created at Catalyst was a company called Cadabra Scope, which was a computer-assisted ass- animation company. Tell me which company it, it ultimately became.
1: It ultimately became Pixar.
0: It seems like a little-known fact to me that, that you had the germ for Pixar.
1: It was one of those things where it can be very, very costly to be too far ahead of your time. The technology and the computers, the cost of computer MIPS at that time was incorrect. It really needed to come down in cost by almost an order of magnitude to make it a viable business. Uh, I didn't know that when we started it, because I said, gee, you know, we can do all this manipulation of graphics. And though we did some really cool stuff, yet it was still cheaper to do it by hand.
0: And so ultimately you sold it to Lucas uh, right. and then the company you know, became Pixar. Part of the reason you had to sell it was you were in financial distress after the Chuck E. Cheese incident. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Basically I borrowed a lot of money and hypothecated my Chuck E. Cheese stock. And so when Chuck E. Cheese kind of went down, all of a sudden my security covenants went away and, uh, and it took me a little while to lick my wounds on that puppy. But more than that, I spent too much money chasing the personal robotics business
0: with your company, Androbot.
1: Androbot, and that was another one where the technology, though close, was not quite good enough.
0: What were the robots supposed to do, by the way?
1: Oh, they're supposed to bring you beer.
0: They collected static electricity uh, uh-huh. along the way, and
1: yeah, the when you have a computer and you get a blue screen of death, nobody gets hurt. You just reboot and, and carry on. In the robotics business, all of your collision avoidance, all of your safety mechanisms become inoperative. Mm-hmm. And if you have a 50-pound robot hurtling across the room and the computer crashes, all of a sudden nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. And we used to have nightmares about a robot running towards a stairwell while somebody was coming up, and all of a sudden you have this 50-pound block of stuff coming down on your head
0: <laughs> uh, I've read that your wife doesn't really like to talk about these these years uh, with, with, with such failures and you've mentioned that Nancy put you on a uh, robot 12-step program <laughs> because you do that is a love of yours:
1: It really is and um, I can't imagine the future without a personal robot
0: another technology that perhaps was before its time uh, you invented in 1985 ETAC correct and that was an auto- 1983. In 1983, an auto navigation system that became the backbone for what companies? Google,
1: you know. Google uh, Maps. Google Maps, Garmin, any of those. It it turns out that the company was successful. I mean, it had a good exit on it.
0: To Rupert Murdoch. To Rupert Murdoch,
1: yeah. But it it was one of those things where it was very obvious to me that uh, automobile navigation electronic was just around the corner.
0: How much of your headspace is occupied by these technologies that if only they were fast-forwarded 20 years, they would work? How much of your psychology do these failures take up versus, you know, the the pioneering uh, successes that you've had in your in your quiet it, moments?
1: In my quiet moments, I believe that you never know when the timing is going to be exactly right. And I think as I've gotten older, I'm more patient. For example, my current project is Brain Rush, which is all about changing the dynamics of how people learn using some of the best brain science. I personally believe that it is exactly the right time, exactly the right place.
0: In addition to the timing being right, the product or the innovation might just have to be tweaked and reinvented a number of times before it works. In your book, you talk about companies like WD-40, you know, having several failures before they finally came up with a product that worked. What does WD-40 stand for?
1: (laughs) You know, the 40th iteration of a formula that uh, really cuts grease.
0: It was also striking to me the number of innovations that have been underappreciated at first due to a failure of imagination, yet turn out to be significantly impactful. You talk about in your book, for instance, the Xerox copy machine. What was said about the Xerox copy machine?
1: Oh, they said, you know, why would you need these? You know, carbon paper works really well. And the world's potential market for copy machines is 5,000 at most. Uh, The founders of Xerox explained why their photocopier market was not large enough to justify production. You know, it just goes on and on.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Nolan Bushnell, founder of the gaming company Atari and Chuck E. Cheese restaurant chain. In the literature I've read about you, I was expecting much more arrogance. Have you changed at all your disposition throughout your, your life, your career?
1: I think... A little bit. Early on, I had some tremendous successes at a very young age.
0: You were 29 when you started a, a Correct.
1: And, and I think that, uh, that that always gives you a little bit of an elevated sense of self. I was more arrogant in my 20s and, and 30s than I am now.
0: What is the cause of the toning down of that arrogance, you know, perhaps in your personal life, for example, with your wife?
1: Oh, I think um, my wife thought that I was a jerk. Um, How did you meet her? I met her. She was working. She was in pre-law at, at the university. But her dad owned a restaurant. And she would bartend and waitress over the weekends. And that was right around the corner from the Atari factory. And uh, I just thought she was spectacular spunky and, and really smart, and uh, I decided that she was worth pursuing. And so slowly I found out what she thought was objectionable about me, and I modified, at least around her.
0: <laughs> what are some examples of the things that offended her?
1: Oh, I think that, that she... I would often come in and hold court with a bunch of uh, the Atari employees, it was more of a Lord of the Manor kind of relationship than a bunch of band of brothers, and uh, she didn't like that. And uh, I think she didn't like. There were a lot of women that were sort of clustering around me. I mean, I was I was young, and some people thought I was good looking and rich, and that that tends to attract a lot, attract a lot of riffraff and my wife just didn't want to have to deal with that
0: so you claimed to her that you would you would change oh no what? no
1: i i didn't tell her i was going to change i i changed i was a, i was a good poser mm. i think i'm a great husband i can mm. honestly say that we've been married 36 years now and i would do it all over again mm. and yeah you know, i think in uh that that she thinks the same way
0: To what extent, outside from your wife, did the challenging years professionally, to what extent did that also cause you to just have a little bit more realistic sense of self?
1: Oh, it's, there is nothing like a a major face plant that, that to say, hey, you're not as cool as you thought you were.
0: You were a mentor to Steve Jobs throughout his, his life. And what's striking to me in understanding your life is how many parallels you had with Steve Jobs and with Apple. One is the computers for the masses at Apple versus, you know, gaming for the masses at Atari. Or Steve's poaching people from Hewlett Packard or from Atari.
1: Oh, poached a lot from us.
0: And you poached a lot from Ampex, the company that you had worked prior. Or Nolan Bushnell, your right-hand man was Al Eckhorn, and Steve's right-hand man was Wozniak, and both of your partners were really the engineering minds and you two were the marketing minds. So you guys seemed to pong off each other.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, of course, I consider myself to be a great engineer, too, though. And, and the, I think that there are certain kinds of entrepreneurs that see wonderful technology, whether it be the mouse at Xerox Park with Steve, or seeing the uh, opportunities for video games from the big computer labs. You know, this, this whole idea of that translation from the very, very esoteric, the very expensive, the very cutting edge, into figuring out a way to make it available. And a lot of times it takes a little bit of a cheat
0: You had an influence on Steve's life, starting with you and Al Alcorn employing him at Atari. How was he influential in your life, just on a personal level?
1: Well, I think Steve, to me, was always a beacon of enthusiasm. And more than that, we used to have these wonderful, wide-ranging conversations about philosophy. I mean, I was always from the school of... uh, Hegel and Kant and the, the Western philosophers and, and Steve was more about Confucius and Buddhism and uh, and the Eastern philosophers. And I think that the proper synthesis of a life plan is to really have a synthesis between the Eastern philosophical, positions in the Western.
0: And speaking of this fusion, right before we started the interview, you actually did a lotus pose for me, a lotus pose handstand for me right before we we recorded.
1: Yeah, it's embarrassing. (laughs) The path to nirvana is, I think, to be as broad in your curiosity and your database as you possibly can. And it, it really has to do with brain science. For example, a lot of people think, gee, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle every day, therefore my brain is really getting smart. No, it turns out that all the neurogenesis of doing the New York Times crossword puzzle happened probably the first six months that you were doing it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And after that, nobody home. I like to play chess, I like to play Go. I'd be willing to bet that 90% of the neurogenesis For me, playing chess happened between the ages of second and third grade. And even though I've been playing the rest of my life, nobody, nothing there. You've got to do different things.
0: And you certainly have so many hobbies, from chess to sailing to debate to what else is there?
1: Well, on on my list, uh, I am going to start doing some long-distance bicycling. I just got back from Machu Picchu. I plan to do probably another six companies.
0: Well, thank you very much for joining us.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: My guest has been Nolan Bushnell. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.